Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about power. And I wanted to talk about power because I feel like in a free falling, like political climate, people aren't thinking or talking enough about how power works as either a meta or as a micro way of understanding relationality. And so I guess uh, I want to start with you, Laura, about what you think about this moment in terms about what it reveals about power, what power is, what power isn't, what power does. Yeah, I think power is kind of like mystified for a lot of people, especially as it relates to power at the institutional level, the government level. And I think that's partially why it's become such fodder for conspiracy theory, you know, because a lot of stuff happens because of networks and you hear how important networking is and you have to know people, you know, (laughs) to influence like policy at a high level or have money to fund it. There's a sense in which we've seen that people with certain amount of power get away with egregious things. And there's been sort of like a reckoning with that the last few years, especially as it relates to sexual assault with the Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein who are able to get away with abuse uh, at a massive scale for years and years and years because of ostensibly their power. So I think it's something that people are inherently distrustful of. And that's kind of like informed this approach where there's like an anti-elitism and there's a movement that distrusts power, but doesn't understand it enough to actually (laughs) confront power. You know, like there's just a fundamental misunderstanding about what power is and how it works. In fact, pushing for draining the swamp was actually advancing like authoritarianism. It it didn't take power away from anyone really. Yeah, I agree with that. I think for me, this moment really exposes how people don't have a theory of power. So I like thinking about power as something that's mystified because I think it's totally true. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about how it works. So I don't think people have theories of gaining power Um, beyond extraction or violence. I don't think people have theories of wielding power outside of domination. I don't think we talk about how to share power through collaboration or what skills you need to communicate through a collaboration. I don't think we talk about how to leverage power, how to, you know, produce like justice or equality by leveraging power. Um, And I don't think we talk about theories of creating power, right? Whether it's exceptional or whether it's mundane, I don't think we talk about the creativity involved in producing or deploying new forms of power. So I think that people don't have a sense about power. And so that leads them to do two things. They react because they can't slow down their thought processes about how power is being enacted. Um, And then they can't manage fear. So I think watching this political moment at the end of the Trump administration as we transition into the Biden administration 
Um, and all the similarities and differences between those two highlight to me how fundamentally fearful Americans are as a people and how that leads them potentially to different conclusions and outcomes, but that fear is the thing that's motivating them of power or for power. So I liked you talking about anti-elitism and it makes me think about the role of expertise about power and about how draining the swamp was really about um, draining expertise and not necessarily like changing financial interests, right? That's just the changing of hands of, of finance capital. And it's about mafia capitalism and about extraction and about mercenary capitalists, right? Rather than loyalty to the administration. But I wonder about the role of expertise in power because the anti-intellectualism of white nationalism and the anti-intellectualism of the Trump administration and of fascism in general seems to me about undercutting the power of people who know things in general, but especially people who understand how power works. What do you think about that? For me, it's like, so the power that happens at the presidential level and at the congressional level I think we overestimate how much power those people actually have. You know, it's always been, they're beholden to corporate interests. You know what I mean? So when we even say like power is changing hands, like did it though? Because people are funding campaigns on both sides and um, the extraction of like expertise, I think is the extraction of people who are, asking questions and holding people accountable you know <laughs> for me it's like less about expertise and more about like eschewing accountability yeah I think there has to be a place for expertise though like we're in a moment where people are dying literally because there's no expertise that the government is demonstrating about how vaccinations work and right how COVID is transmitted and about vaccine distribution or manufacturing or science in general. And so I do think that we have to have a serious conversation about the importance of expertise and what expertise looks like and what ethical expertise is and how to democratize expertise and how to give access to people to, to have edu the educations that they want and need to produce different forms of expertise. But as a communication professional, I also think about the power of speech as a power. And so we just saw last week Trump get deplatformed from Twitter and a bunch of other sites. And I'm thinking a lot about the relationship between speech and power, not just because of him as a figurehead of authoritarian word salad, but also as an understanding of Citizens United and about how corporations became people. And so the corporate speech is more important than the individual speech. And I'm thinking about the power of speech now in this moment, not just because of the SCOTUS decision in Citizens United, but because the speech is what is inciting, you know, this um, proliferation of public uh, Nazi, fascist, anti-Black, anti-Semitic writing. And so in thinking about the power of speech, I'm also thinking about the power of influence and how influence works and about public intellectualism. I mean, because it, as an academic, there is, I think, a real tension between people who are writing for academics and are in their silos and are speaking only to other academics and then the people who want to democratize information and to share power outside of the institutions. And it's, I think that split is more clear now than it was before the Trump administration. 
and it's creating a, an, a grievance structure within higher ed that is super MAGA, even though politically perhaps not, but the structure of sentiments, the structures of feelings um, are the same. And I don't think that the academics see how their grievance and resentment structure is the exact same thing that motivates that rioters last week, you know, as they stormed the U.S. Capitol. Public intellectualism, I think, is like fundamentally different because, you know, I had mentioned a distrust of like elite academics. And part of that is like who funds, you know, like who does the endowments and, you know, <laughs> the Sackler family, Jeffrey Epstein, like who funds MIT, who funds, you know, how much intellectual work reinforces, you know, the status quo and how much disseminates information in a way that, you know, gives other people power, you know, um, expertise can come in a lot of different ways. Like I like the inclusionary nature of the intellectual movements like online, because I feel like, you know, the elite academic and, and the distrust of that is like the same in the same sort of vein as like doctors shutting out midwives <laughs> you know so there is like knowledge of people on the ground and grassroots efforts and they should have a platform to have a dialogue like about do like intellectual thought about social movements and organizing and they should have a platform that way it is interesting to see how the platforms that social media has created for people to establish expertise in new ways that doesn't follow the traditional patterns is interesting, but also how it consolidates power um, for like tech executives and how much they can control the flow of information and money. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the Biden administration is going to have to take up tech regulation and deregulation, obviously, and net neutrality again. I'm thinking, too, though, about the idea of power as energy, right, like to power the machine, right, or steam power or power as energy. And I, I'm thinking about it as potentiality, like the energy is the potential to do X, and also as competence. And when I think about Twitter, I think the thing that I love the most about Twitter is that you can interact with, you know, people from all over the world, famous or not famous, and have intellectual play that you absolutely could not have in real life in real time. And there is a contingency to that that I find really breathtaking and interesting and high risk sometimes. And it is, it is more energy on Twitter than there is even like in the classroom or at an academic conference or because there, the norms are very different in terms of how people engage. So you have to manage their style and their expertise in real time without any context clues or without norms of engagement that are already pre-established. And that kind of risk play, I, I love it for humor. I love it for expertise sharing. I love it for just fact finding. I love it for, for news sharing. I find it to be so much more stimulating than most other spaces where 
you know, information is shared. So there are ways in which I see why academics gravitate towards Twitter because they're out of their Facebook silo and it's not as visual as Instagram or TikTok. And you can have long-term relationships on Twitter with other experts in different ways that are really productive. And for activists, that's how I got on Twitter is to do activist work. The activists that I met on Twitter early on when I got online are, are like people that I know in real life now all over the world that I see in person. And that's been really life-giving for me as an access to the power of their knowledge and the aggregate power that we have in advocating for X, Y, and Z together, you know? Yeah, there's something like interesting about Twitter where things happen in like waves. There's like a temporality to it that I think uh, doesn't exist as much on Facebook because Facebook is like a record. You do have to present a certain brand, you know, and I guess that's true on Twitter too, to a certain extent, like um, with people like going back in time and reading like old tweets. I saw like recently... Uh, I think it was Slate went back and like pulled all of John Ossoff's old tweets where he was like tweeting nerdy stuff as like a 20 something intern. It's interesting though, because um, the power dynamics on Twitter are not what you would expect. Cause I, I feel like in online spaces there, it's almost like a panopticon almost like anyone can see you and learn about you. There's also a permanent nature to it also, where it's like, this is forever, on the internet forever. In some cases, I think this probably does control people's, like how much they feel comfortable sharing, but also like the fact that so many vibrant like sub communities have been able to emerge is cool. As I think about media and power, it just seems to me that media ecologies are a place to think through new relationships to power, how to hijack power and how to create power, how to share power, how to wield power, how people gain power. I think there's gonna be a lot obviously written about the Trump administration's use of Twitter in, in as governance, right? So tweets as policy, tweets as governance, obviously some of that stuff has already emerged. I'm interested in pithiness as a way of democratizing information, but. I also think that it's a form of power. Brevity is a form of power, you know, as a writer person. So I don't know. I, in some ways, I think this is a moment to interrogate mundane power and exceptional power and, and all these forms of power. But on the whole, I think, you know, the average person is so snowed under with the expectations of capital that to try and think through the machinations without training and without support to do it is really, really hard. I guess I'm, I'm thinking a lot these days about how grateful I was that I was a college and high school debater because we got to talk about power a lot when I was very young and formative and think through it through so many case studies. And I, it's interesting because my, my, like I have this fantasy now that, you know, after we all get vaccinated, can we just get a big giant beach house and hang out and talk about all of the stuff that we just watched that we have been trained to think about for like the last 25 years and process it together in real time instead of just over the internet? Because I think that for the people who do understand power, this is a case study that is in, it's inexhaustible in thinking through power dynamics and how they emerge and recede and expand and accelerate and produce harm. And I don't know, I think we would be well served to think more explicitly about power in all of the aspects of our everyday lives. 
I think we think about it in these like really narrow senses. There's been, I think, an overemphasis on presidential power because that's a really easy, really easy to like give that person like outsized power. And the obviously under Bush and probably before that, um, presidential power has been increasing. Like the executive order (laughs) is way more used than it used to be um and it's interesting to think like with a new administration how much sweeping change could occur because of the change in that office in particular obviously the change in the senate is bigger but also like how much power does that office actually have because i do think that there are certain national interests that are immutable and part of that is like um you were saying power as energy earlier and it got me thinking about like our dependency on actual physical literal uh, energy sources and how um, our dependency on oil has driven a lot of military endeavor like our national strategy and how much of that like Biden literally has no control over like we need a certain amount of oil and that places enormous constraints on what any president or any legislative body can actually do because there are fundamental truths about what drives our society and the way that we think, you know, of our national interests. Like, I think that strips power away from individual policymakers. It strips power away from uh, people in offices like the presidency it's become like a much larger beast. And so it's interesting to think of power from that perspective that it was so influenced by our like natural need for natural resources, like oil. Yeah. And I'm thinking too about just how much the DOD brain drains expertise out of the humanities and arts and education and into the military industrial complex and about how that impoverishes our policy, you know, analysis domestically because the DOD is so overfunded that they can buy people out of, you know, spaces where they could do more progressive, more productive thinking um, for the, for the, general welfare, right? Especially around issues of equity and justice. So I think you're right that, you know, resource hoarding is a thing that drives power. And obviously I hate the fetishizing of the presidency, although we're in that presidential moment and also a congressional moment that's deeply focused on the executive um, branch and the legislative branch in a national sense. I do think we need more literacy about how power works locally though, right? Whether it's municipal government or whether it's school boards or whether state ledge, or obviously that's the project that I'm engaged in for sure. But I think that the, you know, there is a translation that has to be coming about resource resources, our relationship to resources, our relationship to managing them and hoarding them and extracting them and wasting them um, that has to be part of the conversation about power. I think a lot about how much the U.S. disproportionately uses resources compared to the rest of the world and how much harm that produces disproportionate to how other populations don't use resources, whether they have them or not. So I think that there is a reckoning coming there, I hope, um, about, especially in the wake of COVID, I, I wonder 
you know, you and I just finished recording normal and I wonder if people will go back to traveling as much and flying as much as they did beforehand or whether there will be a resource perspective post COVID that changes people's mobility and their um, entitlement. I mean, obviously depends on who the people are and if they did that to begin with. So in some ways this is a very white question or it's certainly a class class question, but I do wonder how much, you know, living through a mass extinction event will change people's perspectives about resources as a form of power if at all. And I've toggled back and forth between, you know, people have a sentiment about that and people will want to just go back to whatever felt good and they will become, you know, the marginal hedonists they were just sucking resources for shits and giggles. But I do, I do wonder about that perspective on power. And I hope that there is a framework that emerges from grassroots organizations that's amplified in higher halls of power where we can create consensus about, about resources, including the talent of people of color who have been you know, seen as expendable resources as a product of anti-Black and anti-Brown and colonial US public policy at every level. I think that dialogue um, and that grappling with resources, I mean, it, it really has to start uh, with like labor power and conversations about that. And, and my optimism about it is pretty low, like hearing um, or seeing a lot of debate about just raising the minimum wage, which is a really uh, basic way to increase worker power and like how much pushback there is about even that <laughs> giving people $15 an hour. So I think that really puts into perspective like the fact that uh, huge portions of the population don't even have access to the resources they need for survival. Like mm -hmm. if they were to live as individuals, like you can't live alone on $15 an hour for sure. And so like are any of those people um, who are disproportionately black and brown uh, going to be able to have conversations about resources if they don't have any and we're not willing to distribute them like especially in COVID like again like how many essential workers that language I, I felt was really condescending you know like these workers are essential and that's kind of like creating a false power equivalency almost <laughs> like where these people were forced to work in conditions that like weren't safe um a lot of poultry workers have died a lot of retail workers have died <laughs> people on the front lines um because they couldn't afford not to work and how many people are going to work when they're sick because they don't get paid time off the conversation about power there like they didn't get to define like their role in this pandemic it was defined for them and in a way that exploited them and made them less safe yeah i think that that's right i think that we see uh wage workers as expendable and always have and that has to be a serious conversation i'm also you know curious about housing and what ha happens because the real estate you know industry has made shitloads of money in the pandemic and uh, they also are huge bankrollers of the fascists and of a lot of the structural inequality that people have to deal with. I think about affordable housing in Fayetteville, obviously, and in most college towns is a place where we see that happening in real time. 
but housing, I think, and migration are going to be huge issues in, in the next 10 years that are non-negligible and that are going to affect a lot of aspects of the way that we are living our lives. So there's a lot of power in the real estate um, associations to create really hellish living conditions for people. Arkansas doesn't have a writ of habitability and our landlord tenant laws are trash. <clears throat> and so I think that's one place where if people wanna get involved right now and thinking through the trash and racist power dynamics of their communities, you know, I think that property is always the place to tag in. And I think, you know, landlord tenant laws are, are a way to go, especially in the South. And I think right to work laws. I mean, I, I hope that there is a push to unionize as a way that we understand expanding the rights of access to democracy in the wake of this authoritarian moment. And that includes unionization and other forms of self-governance as a part of workplace culture. And so I would like to see that even though unions have their problems and they can produce and reproduce toxicity and whiteness and you know a bunch of other things, self-governance is definitely better than relying on the corporations to be, be the backstop to fascism and shitty wages. So I would like to see that happen too as a way of really you know grappling with uh, power. I, I like that you brought up real estate because I do think it's following the same patterns that um, like major corporations are following, which is that fewer people own land and the folks at the top own increasingly greater uh, amounts of property. When the power dynamic becomes that uneven, it gets even worse because for example, if you have like a landlord who just owns one property their tenant has a little more sway. You know what I mean? Like, this is my one property. I should take care of a good tenant. Um, I don't want to lose this tenant and lose out on four months. Like, maybe it takes me four months to fill this property again. Um, it's a relationship. Yeah, exactly. But then, you know, as corporations increasingly acquire property and are primarily the landlords, it's like, leave I have a thousand other tenants and that happens to you know with the big tech companies with Walmart becoming the primary employer like in the retail space um they just have so much more say <laughs> over people's lives honestly because the power dynamic is so uneven there I mean <laughs> at this point like Walmart Amazon they're here to stay right? And they have enormous influence over labor policy. And uh, probably, if I had to guess, over <laughs> negotiations about the minimum wage on a congressional level. <laughs> yeah. If you had to guess, it's a safe guess. Yeah. And I think, you know, on the micro level, I, I think about how poorly people are trained to think about power, but also to execute it and how so much of the failure of like the micro failure of America is in not training people how to think about power, like the power of consensus or the tyranny of consensus, right? Or um, <clears throat> the power of flexibility, <laughs> you know? And when you must be inflexible because the ethical stakes are so important. 
And I just, I just think about all the corporate training, like corporate e-trainings I have been through as part of higher ed and how garbage they are at demystifying how the power works and how to think about power ethically. And so I don't know, I'm, I, I think people are more curious about politics because of this moment that they're living through in a way that they really were not at all during the Obama administration in a way that they were not during the Bush administration and uh, that even with September 11th, they were not. So I'm hoping that the convergence of the COVID and the authoritarianism will produce new vectors of attention for the public <laughs> where they can think about their role in producing and maintaining, you know, really narrow white supremacist or patriarchal or classist or colonial forms of power and domination and think about ways, especially because there's been so much mutual aid um, because of COVID, I'm hoping that they find new ways of engaging their communities and, and sharing power that are less destructive than what we saw that existed before. At least people will be able to see better that white supremacy and the way that it operationalizes in our institutions is like, and why people don't say anything about it or it hasn't been confronted really, why people have ignored like race isn't a problem. Um, that happens because power and people in power, they create incentives for you not to challenge. So, and that's part of like the white lady pleasing stuff that you find so irritating. It's like people in power, like they make it seem like you also can gain that or they prioritize actions that reinforce their own power to be likable and accepted then you also have to promote um that power and in the case of white supremacy a lot of that's like ignoring blatantly racist stuff you know or pretending like it's not racist like i don't see race which is a racist thing to say. Yeah, I was thinking about too, the power of complaints and Sarah Ahmed has a new book coming out at Duke about complaints that's based on some of her earlier work and just about the power of the complaint in catalyzing attention to things that are unequal and also the <clears throat> disincentivizing of complaining that you know corporate white supremacy produces and also like the interpersonal style of pleasing and, and or avoiding and how the complaint can help drive uh, reassessments of power and that's what generally they're designed to do is reassess power and sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not helpful but I just think about the complaint as a tool of renegotiating power and how intolerant our institutions are of the complaint you know and of the complaintant. And I was thinking about how much um, actually gets read as a complaint now like things that are assertions of like individuality or anything that confronts power can be read as a complaint. Um, saying like, I deserve a week off work if I'm sick, you know? <laughs> like that is a complaint. Why are you complaining? You're lucky to have a job. You know, that's the kind of, that's where we are. <laughs> it's a complaint. <laughs> that's because the political culture is, is coercive. 
So anybody who doesn't want to produce normal and anybody who wants to offer complaint, anybody who wants to share power instead of hoard power, all of that has to be managed through the discipline of coercion. And so we are watching the macro level of coercion become like the centerpiece of executive power. And but it's not like that isn't an essential feature of every micro encounter where power is being abused either. There's a big conversation happening especially online about advising, graduate advising, and how coercive, you know, graduate education is. And I just think about how many graduate students who have big ideas and good ideas and who are learning don't have the benefit of hypothesis testing their ideas in a bunch of different vectors because their professors can't manage that level of risk and play with ideas. So, you know, even in the training of new experts, they're asked to replicate and, and duplicate their advisor's ideas as a precondition of their employment and of their status as an academic. And that's the case in a lot of other places too. In some places, I think there are more freedoms even in corporate America to hypothesis test and to play because there's so much more capital staking. That kind of you know think tank atmosphere where there's the collaboration is not happening over such small potatoes and such small stakes, but the stakes are higher. And so the collaboration can be riskier because there's more capital staking it. When I think about what kind of shifts have to be made in power, they're also just totally connected to freedom instead of coercion. And we just need more spaces and better training to think through how we're operationalizing power to get to freedom instead of how we're operationalizing power to enrich ourselves.